Hello everyone, I wish you a very, very, very warm welcome back to our podcast. I hope you had some lovely Easter days last week, in case you were celebrating. And if you didn't, I still hope you had a great week. So, I'm Rika, and this is a podcast of Promote Ukraine, and the series is called Ukraine Up to Date, in case you didn't notice. And we usually bring out this podcast every week, usually on Mondays if there is no celebrations in between. And we put together the most interesting, relevant, and important topics and events about Ukraine and talk a little bit about it. So, in case you want to stay on top of things that are happening in and around Ukraine, don't worry, we keep you up to date. And without further ado, let's start with the week's hot topics. So, starting with a less happy topic than Easter celebrations, the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, made a working visit to the Luhansk region together with the ambassadors of the G7 and the European Union. As the press service of the president often informs, during the working trip to Luhansk region, the head of state visited the Ukraine for Liberators memorial complex in the town of Milave, on the border with Russia, where 2,814 barriers had been buried in a mass grave. The president and the foreign diplomats laid flowers by the eternal flame and commemorated those killed in battles. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky also viewed the Bell of Remembrance at the memorial complex. This is the first of four bells, the installment of which had been initiated last year. Four bells symbolized the memory of the dead and reconciliation between the countries that participated in World War II. The Bell of Remembrance in Milevit town, the Bell of Victory in the Zakarpatia region, as well as the Bell of Peace in Donetsk city, and the Bell of Unity in Simferopol city, which uh, will be installed after Ukraine restores its control over the temporarily occupied territories. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine released a statement on the Day of Remembrance and Reconciliation, stating that Ukraine protects not only itself, but also the whole of democratic Europe from Russian aggression. It is underscored that Russia launched a military aggression against Ukraine in 2014 and occupied part of its country, as we all know. Meanwhile, uh, President Zelensky released a video address on the occasion of the Day of Victory over Nazism on the 76th uh, anniversary of the end of World War II. In particular, he stated that the victory over Nazism for Ukrainians was a gratitude that has no borders, no statute of limitations or geographical distribution. So to quote Zelensky, it's a memory of its horrible price. More than 8 million Ukrainians died in World War II. Every fifth Ukrainian did not return home. In total, the war claimed more than 50 million human lives. And as the president noted, Modesty adorns the winners, and everyone he was lucky enough to communicate with World War II veterans knows how they always talked about the war. Modesty without strain, without vanity, pathos, and without a drop of romanticism. He stressed that the 9th of May was not a carnival, not a costume party, and also definitely not a photo shoot of politicians. And now to a yeah, slightly different topic. Um, it's from a really interesting piece written by Marta Barandi that you can, of course, also read on promoteukraine.org. And it looks at the, yeah, at the relationship between Russia and Germany and Ukraine, or like more specifically, what Germany owes Russia and Ukraine. 
So, in early February, the German federal president, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, defended Berlin's decision to pursue completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, in part by arguing that fuel sales were one of the last bridges between Russia and Europe, and cited Germany's unique historic responsibility to atone for German crimes during World War II. He claimed Germany did not have a right to lose sight of this wider context. Yet, this is a narrow view indeed of the wider context when one considers the magnitude of the human cost of World War II elsewhere in the former USSR, particularly in Ukraine. In addition, Germany's debt to the entities that made up the former USSR does not in any way imply that Germany must today accept Russia's attempts to dismember Ukraine. In the current conflict, accepting Putin's confiscation of the memories of Soviet's war dead, his conflation of Soviet and Russian victims, and his conception of Russian victimhood provides him with a sort of get-out-of-jail-for-free card and allows him to continue to destabilize Ukraine, justified in his view by the sufferings of the Russian, so no longer Soviet people, from uh, 1941 to 1945. Putin seeks to use history to recover the moral high ground and justify Russia's current outlaw foreign policy. He is trying to use his version of history to suggest wartime Russia, and by extension his Russia, are above criticism. Yet, in fact, the German invasion and occupation spared no part of what are now Belarus and Ukraine. It seems Germany's feelings of responsibility to atone for its crimes conveniently do not extend to these victims when its leaders perceive its economic and energy interests are at stake. Moreover, the majority of the Soviet war dead were not ethnic Russians and did not live in modern Russia. Compared to the Russian SSR, a larger percentage of the population of Belarus, Ukraine, Latvia and Armenia died during World War II. If there is a debt to be paid, surely it is to the descendants of those groups as well. On the 22nd of June 1941, it was not Moscow, but Ukrainian cities that were subjected to mass airstrikes. So you have Kiev, Zhytomyr, Odessa, Sevastopol and other civilian cities that became targets of the bombing. And it is also estimated that the Germans murdered between 100,000 and 150,000 people at Babi Yar near Kiev during the occupation. The massacre of approximately 33,700 Jews at Babi Yar in September 1941 was the largest mass killing under the auspices of the Nazi regime and its collaborators during its campaign against the Soviet Union and has been called the largest single massacre in the history of the Holocaust to date, surpassed only by the massacre later in October 1941 of more than 50,000 Jews in Odessa. It is estimated that the German killed more than 100,000 residents of Kyiv of all ethnic groups at Babi Yar during the war. The Germans deliberately targeted Ukrainian nationalists, writers and artists. Among these murdered at Babi Yar were 621 members of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. Ukrainian poet and activist 
Olena Teliha and her husband are renowned Banduris Mikhailo Teliha were murdered in February 1942 there. And in 1941, the Germans killed Ukrainian activist writer Ivan Rohach, his sister and his staff. Putin's evocation of the 20 million Soviet dead during World War II fails to acknowledge Soviet citizens were as likely to die during the war years because of Stalin's bad decisions and underestimation of Hitler as from the actions of the German army. We should also remember that Stalin's collectivization policies led to the death of 3.3 till 7.5 million Ukrainians from 1931 till 1933 during the Holodomor, which is a famine deliberately worsened by Moscow's inaction and the West turning a blind eye. Putin wants the rest of the world to overlook Russia's present diminished economic condition, its failure to compete with the world's most advanced economies, and the decay of the Russian state and civil society, and think of Russia as this great power that vanquished Nazism in Europe. Lacking a project for the future and a compelling vision to offer to the younger generation and clinging to power through mass manipulation of the Russian constitution, he must hearken back to a glorious, if not like whitewashed, past to justify his continued rule. To quote the ministry's response, a quarter of the applicants did not receive Russian citizenship because they called for a forced change in the foundations of Russia's constitutional order and pose a threat to security. The process of granting Russian citizenship to the residents of the occupied territories is ongoing, as the Ministry of Internal Affairs of the Russian Federation emphasizes. And as a quick reminder again, the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, Dmitry Koleba, recently stated that Ukraine's allies don't react harshly enough to the issuance of Russian passports in uh, certain regions. The European Union found itself in the crosshairs of Russian sanctions following the United States. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Russian Federation explained the imposed restrictions by responding to the actions of the European Union, which had previously imposed personal sanctions for persecuting Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. A total of eight people were put on a stop list, including European Parliament President David Maria Sassoli and head of Berlin's prosecutor's office, Jörg Raupach. An interesting fact is that Sassoli did not draft EU sanctions against Russia and has not paid a visit to Moscow during his tenure as the president of the European Parliament. As Sassoli put it, the ban simply did not apply to him. To quote him, as he told the Italian daily La Stampa, this is not a personal matter. One beats the president to hit the parliament. So the Russian restrictive measures were also imposed of uh, Vera Yurava, the vice president of the European Commission for Values and Transparency, uh, Asa Scott, head of the Laboratory of Chemical Biological Radiation and Nuclear Security at Sweden's Total Defense Research Institute, uh, Jacques Maire, the member of France's delegation to the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, 
and Ivars Abolins, the chairman of Latvia's National Electronic Mass Media Council, as well as Maris Baltins, the director of Latvia's State Language Center, and Ilmar Tamusk, head of Estonia's language department. The foreign ministry notes that they will be banned from entering Russia. Moreover, the imposition of sanctions against these individuals was a response to the actions of the EU, which imposed restrictive measures on six Russians on the 2nd of March and the 22nd of March this year. And to quote the Russian foreign ministry, such actions of the European Union leave no doubt that their real goal is to restrain the development of our country at any cost. To impose its one-sided concept of a rule-based world order that undermines international law to openly defy the independence of russia's foreign and domestic policy russians believe that the european union is taking such steps openly and deliberately with the knowledge and encouragement of the united states which does not hide its interest in retransforming europe into an arena of sharp geopolitical confrontation and as a reminder, on the 16th of April 2021, Russia banned eight U.S. former and incumbent high-ranking officials from entering its territory. These restrictions were imposed in response to U.S. sanctions against Russian officials on the 2nd of March this year. And in particular, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandra Mayorkas, uh, Director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation Christopher Wray, Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines, U.S. President's uh, Policy Advisor Susan Rice, and Director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons Michael uh, Carvajal were put on a Russian sanctions list. In addition, two ex-senior officials were banned from entering Russia, former Donald Trump's National Security Advisor John Bolton and former director of the Central Intelligence Agency Robert Woosley. After Russia had made demarge, Europe did not hesitate to respond. Thus, the Swedish Foreign Ministry summoned a Russian ambassador. And to quote the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Sweden, we regret that Russia decided to continue to worsen relationships with the EU. We take the deterioration of democracy, human rights and the rule of law in Russia very seriously. Also, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Latvia assessed the Russian sanctions as follows. To quote again, the decision of the Russian Federation on the 30th of April is an attempt to put pressure on Latvia through its national language and media policies. Russia's decision to impose restrictive measures on top European officials testifies to the fact that Russia continues to follow the path of confrontation. This is stated in the declaration by the High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, Joseph Borrell. And to quote Borrell, This decision, which directly targets the European Union and its member states, is unacceptable, devoid of any legal justification and baseless. It serves to underline that the Russian Federation had so far chosen the path of confrontation instead of seeking to reverse the negative trajectory of EU-Russia relations. And also concerning the Navalny case, on the diplomatic front, Russians were outraged not only by EU sanctions. After all, in recent years, MEPs have passed countless resolutions condemning Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014. They also refused to recognize the illegal victory of the Belarusian leader, Alexander Lukashenko, a close ally of Putin in the 2020 re-election. 
In turn, in uh, September 2020, MEP Peace adopted the first of three resolutions condemning Moscow for its ill treatment of the Russian opposition activists. The resolution called on Russia to end the persecution, intimidation, violence, and repression of its political opponents. In January last year, 581 MEPs passed a resolution calling on EU member states to take an active stance on Navalny's arrest and significantly strengthen the EU restrictive measures vis-à-vis Russia. In their speeches, some members of the European Parliament demanded that Russian oligarchs linked to the Putin regime, as well as members of his inner circle, must be fined and that the construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline must be stopped. In March this year, the EU imposed sanctions on several senior Russian officials. So last month, uh, 97 European politicians from 17 EU countries signed a joint statement demanding that the Russian authorities must grant Navalny immediate access to independent doctors and release the politician from prison. Recently, 569 MEPs adopted a text calling for the immediate and unconditional release of Alexei Navalny, whose sentencing is politically motivated and runs counter to Russia's international human rights obligations. And by the way, PACE authorized French delegation uh, representative mayor to prepare a report on the case of Russian opposition politician. Uh, The report is expected to be presented to the Assembly in June. The French parliamentarian planned to visit Russia while preparing the document. However, it was not meant to be. Mayor is already under Russian sanctions. So yeah, it stays exciting of uh, who will be next. During a working visit to Warsaw, President Volodymyr Zelensky signed a joint declaration by the leaders of Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Ukraine. Uh, This is what the press service of the head of state says. Presidents of the five countries met in the capital of Poland to celebrate the 230th anniversary of the adoption of the 3rd of May Constitution. It was the first modern state-effective fundamental law on our continent and the second one worldwide. To quote the declaration, mindful of the historical experience, proud of the achievements of our contemporary cooperation in the region and conscious of the challenges we look with hope to the future. We express the conviction that the prosperity of our common heritage and common home rooted in the European civilization demands that, just like home, also Europe be built on the basis of fundamental values and principles. These are, with no doubt, freedom, sovereignty, territorial integrity, democracy, the rule of law, equality and solidarity. A uniting Europe should remain open to all countries and nations which share the above-mentioned values. And the presidents note that they approached with understanding and support the persistent strivings of all the peoples of the region with whom the nations are joined by common historical fate and who wish to enjoy today the blessings of freedom and democracy while courageously demanding that their rights will be respected. Moreover, the leaders underscore that the solidarity of nations is one of the cornerstones of peace, stability, development, prosperity and resilience. And to quote the document again, led by this assertion, we are committed to continuing the dialogue and cooperation among the states we represent. 
And later, during a bilateral meeting, President of Poland, Duda, and President of Ukraine, Zelensky, signed a joint declaration on Ukraine's European prospects. According to the Polish leader, Poland continues to consistently support Ukraine in the issue of the European prospect. Ukrainian enterprises, which lost property and profits due to Russia's aggression in Donbass and the illegal occupation of Crimea, filed lawsuits at more than 12 commercial arbitration courts. The total amount of claims is over 4.5 billion US dollars, as the Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, Yenin, said. According to him, Ukrainian enterprises are encouraged to go to arbitration courts and sue the Russian side for damages. Currently, such lawsuits have already been filed at more than 12 commercial arbitration courts. There are the first positive results in some litigations, Yenin added. And to quote him, first positive judgments were delivered in three of them. That's a total amount of about $250 million. Yanin also informed that the main lawsuits, in particular the lawsuit of Naftogaz, are still ahead. According to him, Russia tries to appeal against the judgments of the commercial arbitration courts, but the penalty is being charged meanwhile. And as to quote the diplomat again, and no matter how long the Russian side delays the onset of consequences, these actions raise the cost increasingly. And as a reminder, the overall damages caused by the Russian Federation's annexation of Crimea reached 1 trillion hryvnias, being almost a quarter of Ukraine's gross domestic product as estimated in 2019. A corresponding statement was made by Deputy Prosecutor General of Ukraine, uh, Mamedov. And as he said, to quote again, according to preliminary data of criminal proceedings concerning Crimea alone, the damages reach 1 trillion hryvnias. Obviously, this is not a fixed sum because the aggression of the Russian Federation and the violation of the rights of citizens in the occupied territories of the peninsula and Donbass continue. The Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, Dmitry Kuleba, held talks with U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, who is on a working visit to Ukraine. The Ukrainian and U.S. foreign ministers discussed the development of a strategic political and security partnership between Ukraine and the United States, reinforcement of Ukraine's defense capabilities in the fight against Russian aggression, U.S. support for Ukraine's anti-corruption efforts, and enhancement of an open, competitive economy. The parties paid special attention to the efficient involvement of the United States in the diplomatic efforts to peacefully resolve the Russian-Ukrainian war in close coordination with Germany and France as parties to the Normandy format. The chief diplomats exchanged views on a possible meeting between the presidents of the United States and Russia and agreed to coordinate positions in preparations for it. On behalf of the U.S. President Joe Biden, the Secretary of State reaffirmed his strong support for Ukraine's independence, sovereignty and territorial integrity. He testified that the United States was ready to join the Ukrainian initiative of the Crimean platform and take part in its inaugural summit. Kuleba and Blinken noted that the partial withdrawal of Russian troops from the border with Ukraine did not eliminate a threat of further aggravation by Russia and agreed on the need to continue to closely monitor Russia's actions. 
The parties paid special attention to the energy security of Europe and Ukraine, pointed out that the common position of the Russian Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline project. They expressed common interest in developing cooperation between Ukraine and the United States in the field of energy, including hydrogen. The Secretary of State reaffirmed the readiness of the United States to continue to fully support Ukraine's efforts to implement internal transformations for successful Euro-Atlantic integration and to continue Ukraine's cooperation with the IMF. Kuleba informed his interlocutor about the steps taken by the Ukrainian authorities to ensure the efficient operation of anti-corruption institutions, the independence of the judiciary and the prosecutor's office, and the de-oligarchization of key sectors of the Ukrainian economy. The interlocutors discussed Ukraine's further integration into NATO, which is important for the security of Central Europe, the Black Sea region and the Euro-Atlantic area in general. The chief diplomats exchanged views on the US-Ukraine cooperation overcoming key global issues, such as fighting the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, combating climate change and protecting human rights. So that was already it with this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed recording it for you, of course. And uh, yeah, of course, leave a feedback for us so we can maybe keep on improving that podcast for you. And as usual, if you want to have more information on Ukraine-EU-Russia relations and those sort of things, um, you can read other articles on promoteukraine.org. Uh, but yeah, for now, I wish you a wonderful start into the week and I hope to see you next week with some fresh and new information.